0: Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in our first episode of 2023, we hear from Universal Studio Group Chairman Perlina Iqbal plus Studio Chiefs Toby Gorman, Beatrice Springbourne and Erin Underhill, about the Comcast-owned company's content priorities for the coming year and from C21's Clive Whittingham, Nico Franks, Jordan Pinto and Carolina Kaminska about the major trends and stories they see shaping the next 12 months. Perlina Ikbokwe is the chairman of Universal Studio Group, where she leads its four studios, Universal Television, UCP, Universal Television Alternative Studio and Universal International Studios, which together produce over 3,000 hours of programming currently airing or streaming around the globe. She joined Jordan Pinto at C21's Content London recently, together with the presidents of these divisions, Toby Gorman, Beatrice Springbourne and Erin Underhill. To talk about the vast array of scripted and unscripted hits the company's behind – those it has in development, their content priorities and future goals, and the trends they see shaping the industry in 2023.
1: First, everyone give a a warm round of applause to uh, Paulina Ibokwe, please. (laughs) Okay, so um, I'm Jordan Pinto. I'm the North American editor for C21. Um, And so in this keynote session with Universal Studio Group, um, Paulina, who is the chairman of Universal Studio Group, um, will chat to us. Um, Paulina, you lead four studios, um, and there are acronyms galore here. But So we have uh, uh, Universal Television, uh, Universal Content Productions, Universal Television Alternative Studios, which is the unscripted side, and Universal International Studios. Um, you oversee a slate of around 120 projects across more than 25 platforms. Um, and in the session, I'm going, to ch- I'm going to chat with you for a little bit about the um, maybe the, the 30,000 foot view. And then um, after that, we will bring out a trio of presidents of the studios um, that kind of sit, sit under your perch. Uh, and we'll chat with Beatrice Springborn, who's the president of UCP and UIS, uh, Toby Gorman, who's the UTA's president, and Erin Hunt- Underhill, who is the president of Universal Television. Um, and we're going to hear a bit about future goals, um, trends that you see shaping the landscape, and some of your content priorities, which I know is of interest to our audience. Um, okay, Paulina, so let's uh, let's dive in. Um, your story is, is a very interesting one. Um, you uh, moved to the U.S. at the age of six from Nigeria, and um, I think kind of f- fell in love with the medium of television. Um, that has kind of, t- you know, led you into the industry eventually. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit about that and how how those experiences have shaped you as, as a business leader.
2: Sure, um, yeah, I was born in Nigeria and I came to this country when I was six. And I, when I found the television, you couldn't pry me away from the television. I watched TV day and night. I watched everything from the Love Boat to Masterpiece Theater to you know every cop show that was on the air to you know Roots to Love Boat and Fantasy Island I you know high low didn't matter I loved it all, and um, you know as a six-year-old immigrant child, you know TV was my and I say this to people it was my best friend it was my babysitter you know it was my friend, um, and television it it taught me, my you know this country that I just moved to. It, it taught me about America. It taught me what was important, what was valuable. you know. And, and, and as I got older, I, I realized that television really shaped how I experienced the world and my relationship to the world, because I learned all the values through television. Um, it wasn't until I got to college that I learned that you could actually work in television <laughs> and that people would pay you to work in television. Uh, that was an epiphany. Um, and, uh, so now, you know, when I, now that I work in the, in the business, I, you know, I'm humbled and I, i just, I, I value my, you know, the opportunity to get to make TV shows because I know the effect that those stories had on me as a young child and how I viewed myself in the world. And I understand the impact of telling stories and who gets to tell the stories. Mm -hmm. So, um... You know so i there's not a day that goes by where i I kind of pinch myself and go, "You make t v shows mm-hmm. yes. so that's that's how that experience you know is, affects me you know today
1: yeah um yeah, so I, you know its it sounds and I've certainly got the sense from you that you adore making t v shows i do um <laughs> but at the same time, you were also in a in a very high <laughs> position in, in a studio so um Talk to us about the, the Universal Studio Group, um, how it's set up, it's a, you know, it's a four-pronged right. studio beast. Um, yeah, how is it set up? How does it supply? Um, mm-hmm. How is it a supplier to the, the global content
2: right. industry? So for quite a long time, our studios were these you know, four siloed uh, groups, and then uh, in 2020, or in early 2020, uh, Jeff Shell, the chairman of NBC Universal, uh, we the company, restructured our studio teams and brought these four once siloed and disparate studios under one umbrella organization called Universal Studio Group. Now the, the studios, Universal Television, UCP, UIS, and utahs they maintain their creative identities in the marketplace, but we also collaborate together and and we get to pool all of our resources together to go into the marketplace. So while you know Universal Television has a legacy of working primarily for NBC, our our you know in-house broadcast network, um, and is the home of shows like Law and Order and The Office, and UCP has a legacy of, of having worked with our basic cable networks and was the home of Blue Sky shows like Suits, you know, and and Mr. Robot later on. Um, uh, Utas has serviced, you know, NBC in terms of the our, our unscripted shows like, you know, World of Dance starring Jennifer Lopez and Titan Games starring Dwayne Johnson. And the International Studio, obviously, you know, the, the home of uh, Downton Abbey, uh, you know, servicing, you know, lots of uh, platforms, especially in this market. And we're also the home to the NBC Universal Formats team, mm-hmm. which is our division that. Uh, distributes our formats around the world, um, including that's my jam UK, um, and and within the studio we're responsible for you know producing and developing shows, not just for our internal platforms obviously they're very important for us NBC uh, USA Sci-Fi. Uh, in the U.S. and a Peacock in the U.S. our new streaming platform, and you know we also are uh, looking to do more. You know we currently supply Sky and hoping to do more um, with Sky as well. So um, one of the, the shows that are you know specifically as an example of our looking to do more with Sky here in the in, uh, U.K. You know our international studio. I think you may have read about it. Is is now doing um, *Day of the Jackal* yes. with uh, with, uh, with Sky, so we're really very excited about that, and that's a great example of hopefully you know uh, our greater relationship. Yeah. So those are you know those are what the, the the four studios, but as I said, we op they operate independently creatively, but also some great opportunities for us to collaborate on projects and the studios working together on certain shows, you know, across countries, you know, across uh, broadcast and streaming and what have you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, w- with all that said, obviously, you're a US-based entity. Yeah. Um, but you're talking there about, you know, w- wanting to b- partner more with Sky, which is obviously mu- music, to the, music to the ears of, of, the, of the Europeans as well. Um, how, how are you, how do you think about the I suppose the storytelling mode uh, for you guys as a a US-based company and one that is looking to uh, kind of operate globally and and tell global stories?
2: Yeah, it's a, you know, whenever I hear that, I always think that's an odd question because I go, great stories are great stories and they travel everywhere, you know, so any show we make, we all obviously always hope that it's a global story and that there's something about that story that will have some global appeal. But I, I think, just at least structurally, we are set up. You know, as I said, because we are this great, you know, amalgam of U.S.-based studios, you know, U.K.-based studios, but you also have production companies, you know, out of Australia, you know, Matchbox, and so that um, we can collaborate and work in just about any country. And our our shows, I think, no matter where we make them, they travel. You know, I think we we've been talking a lot about. How are we telling stories that will have that universal appeal and resonance? And I think the rise of the streamers has really illustrated that a show in any language can be a big hit everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think we're, we're set up to do that because I think we're set up to try to tell the best stories that we can tell that hopefully appeal everywhere.
1: Um, in, in terms of the split of shows that if they're created under the Universal Studio Group umbrella, um, which of those shows are then sold within the kind of NBC, Universal, Comcast uh, right. ecosystem versus yeah. things that you would sure. sell
2: outside? Sure, I mean, outside. yeah, yeah. you know, as I said, of, of all the the shows that we, you know, oversee, as you mentioned, I think over 100 shows and over, like, 25 platforms, um, you know, we have a... Right now, it's a fairly even mix of shows that we sell to our internal platforms um, and shows that we sell to any platform that's, <laughs> that wants to buy a show from us. But it's really just about who has the most passion for the show, you know? Um, right now, you know, at least our, our Peacock streaming platform is, is right now a fairly US-facing platform, and so we know the kinds of stories <laughs> that they want, but um, it's, you know, we try not to make the determination as to where the show should live. We want the marketplace and the buyers to tell us how much? If you this is a story you're passionate about and that you love, then that makes sense. That that's the place that the show is going to be uh, nurtured. So, you know, so we can have a show like an Umbrella Academy. I can live at Netflix, or, or Never Have I Ever that you know can live at Netflix, or um, you know, or The Capture you know on on the BBC, or Equalizer that's on CBS you know in 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 the U.S. and sold all over the world. So. Um, that mix of internal and external, I think, is one of the things that you know we're really proud of, and and that our producers really appreciate having affiliated platforms, but also being able to go out into the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. Of those 117 shows currently, how many of them are unscripted versus scripted? Um,
2: I think right now our unscripted slate is about 25. Okay. So unscripted
1: is the is the majority currently. Correct,
2: but. We have some very big unscripted ambitions, you know, and um, and you know we have a show called uh, The Americas that we're working on with B- uh, BBC and Surviving Earth, you know, a lot of big docu-series. You know, that's an area that we're really looking to, you know, ramp up, um, ramp up in. But you know, I think that's my jam, UK. I think is an example of our very large ambitions and how our studio teams are working together. You know, that's that was something that was started in um, the US and then the, a show that uh, Jimmy Fallon, you know, produces, that our wonderful formats team has sold to multiple territories and that we got to shoot, you know, uh, here.
1: Okay, fantastic. Um, one of the things we've heard a lot, and I think from this stage we've heard a lot of um, this year is Especially on the scripted side, a, a bit of concern about costs, the cost of production, um, and whether we'll see um, a scaling back um, in terms of the number of projects that are being commissioned ac- across across the world, kind of across the board. Uh-huh. Um, with 117 projects now I- in the year ahead, do you you know do you forecast that that would would decrease? in this economic climate, do you think it would kind of re- remain around that 120 mark or could, could it even increase? Like yeah. I think we're, we're hearing different things. Some people say they're not seeing a scripted slowdown and some people say it's, it, you know, it's definitely happening, it's coming. It's, I can't really put my finger on yeah. <laughs> what is happening. Right. I've got <laughs> no idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hear the same, you know, I've seen the same headlines of gloom, doom and gloom and all of those things. I don't, I don't know. I would say so far we haven't seen it um, so far, people still want great shows, and you know. And I, I feel like even in the midst of a challenging environment, which people seem to be saying we're going into, I think there's opportunities, mm-hmm. right? And I think we're trying to be smart enough to find what the opportunities are going to be. Um, and so, by the way, a show doesn't have to cost 20 million dollars an episode to be great. A show can cost. 2.8 million dollars an episode and be great as a drama as we've seen that right very Money. very
1: speci- specific number there yeah. hey, can't can't go below can't go below that
2: <laughs> but i am just saying that it's it's you know like it's as someone who reads scripts every day it starts on the page and it's about the quality of the writing it's not about the necessarily the spectacle or the costume it just has to be great writing and Matter of fact, that great writing can take place in one room, you know, and it can be great, and it doesn't, so there may be an opportunity, and we've talked about it, there may be an opportunity to continue to do great shows in a way that isn't about cost, but, you know, that can meet anyone's price range, depending upon what they're looking for. Okay, So I think because of that, we're trying to be nimble and adjust. I don't see a slowdown, we haven't seen it yet, and so I'm gonna continue to be positive
1: this feels like a logical juncture to invite the other Please. president out. So um, I will ask them to come onto the stage. I don't know, I actually know which door they're supposed It's like the to dating
2: show. Back. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> huh?
1: okay. It does feel a bit like a pageant.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I was like, is my mic on? <laughs> yeah, so
1: in, in the middle here, we have uh, Beatrice Springborn, who is uh, the president of UCP and UIS. Uh, we have Toby Gorman, who is the president of uh, United Television Alternative <laughs> Studios, and Aaron Underhill on the end, uh, who is the president of Universal Television. Um, Beatrice, maybe I'll start. I'll start with okay. you. Um, you have a dual role as the president of both um, UCP and UIS. Um, could you talk a bit about, about how the strategy looks at those sure. both of those entities, and maybe how there's a potential interlock between them? Because, yeah. yeah.
3: So I think with uh, UCP, I'm going to use more acronyms. Apologies. Um, you know, having been a buyer before, I think one of the things, especially for me, but I think for the group as, that we're looking at, is is it? I mean, I think a great script comes down to two things: which is it surprising. And does it make you feel something? And so instead of being organized around genre, or you know, we're looking for a soap check. We're really like those are the like basic things that we're starting to look for. And then around that, I think UCP really has done true crime really well. So from the Act, Candy, A Friend of the Family, uh, we've just I think been able to elevate that to to an extent, especially with Nick Antosca, who's one of our deals. Or doing stories that you think you know, but you actually don't know. So Gaslit or Angeline, which looked at Watergate, or Angeline, which is a, a character in Los Angeles who's larger than life. So I think you know we've been able to take those stories and bring a quality and a best in class that I know when I was a buyer, that was always what I was looking for. It wasn't like, I need a soap, I need this, I need that. So I think from, from our standpoint at UCP especially, we're able to unlock, a, external buyers as well because we have those deals and we are, we have that approach that takes the quality to another level. And then speaking to UIS, you know, the thing that we've really been focused on is I think in the international market with the studios here and the global studio market, a lot of them start to feel like holding companies, right? You're looking at dozens and dozens of production companies. Many of them are world-class and great, but I think when you're managing that large of a slate of production companies, you can't give it the same attention you can for us. I mean, we really look at it as a talent over territory approach. So with our Cook Dan Tran deal, we were like, we weren't like we want someone in France, we just said, he's an amazing writer who can do genre, and we know that we can sell him around the world, or you know, with our deals with Heyman, Carnival, Working Title, we just signed a deal with, with Home Team, those deals are based on, can we be additive to them? You know, we have this amazing IP group that's run by Jordan Moblo that we can bring them things. We, we actually don't have so many production companies that we can't you know, add value and bring them something and not feel like they're working in a, in a huge kind of farming environment,
1: Yeah, so. Do you think, is there a chance you will look to bring more more companies into the UIS fold, like you named some you know illustrious yeah. companies that are already part of the group, but is, is the plan yes. to, to build on that?
3: Yes, I think it's it's interesting. You know, I think we spent the past year, we've looked at deals, we, we talked to people. I think we're really looking at an approach that if it's right, we'll do a deal, but there are producers who say, we just want to do one project with you, mm-hmm. or we see the value of you and how the studio works and how you understand the whole marketplace. So we'll do deals with producers we don't have deals with, or projects with producers we don't have deals with, or, you know, projects that we bring to our deals or projects they bring us or, you know, we have looked at a couple of opportunities and if it's right, we'll do it, but it has to feel right and feel like it's a relationship that can build.
1: Yeah. Um, Just final one, in terms of um, geography, you mentioned France, there was an area that you'd looked at. Are, Are there any other, you know, areas or markets that you're especially interested in?
3: We have a deal with Buendia in Spain, but you know again we're not really going we want to be in Spain we want to be in Italy yes there's great talent there but we really go who's the best talent and the highest level of quality of talent and then build from there versus we have to be in this territory.
2: Because I think because as we talked about earlier if you get the right talent those stories travel anywhere so it's not I don't think it's so much about what country are you in and what country does that story come from.
3: Yeah I mean we have examples We have projects that you know are a UK producer with an Italian showrunner with a with a Korean showrunner from UCP that we're putting together and just using the right elements to mix and match of what makes makes the project feel best and sometimes that's specific to one territory but it's usually a lot, across a lot of our bigger projects that we're going out with in the next year it's it's a mix and match of different places
1: Wonderful. Um, Toby, let's bring you in at this point. How, where does UTAS fit into all of, all of this? So we're all about premium unscripted
4: programming. I joke that we're the ones that like to give money away. We give <laughs> prizes and we make dreams come true. Um,
1: is, that, is that for the contestants or the producers? For the contestants, no. by the way. Yes,
4: nothing underhand. This is legitimate. So. Um, we, we create top shelf game shows, competition shows, um, and uh, we are the youngest of the four studios. We're just six years old. We started with one uh, game show back then, and then we've grown uh, to sort of be known for these big formats with big talent, as Polina mentioned. Uh, the Titan Games with The Rock was w- uh, a big one for us. Um, Jennifer Lopez and World of Dance, and then most recently, That's My Jam, which has had tremendous success around the world already, which we're very excited about. Um, and we love creating formats that can be replicated around the world. That's the key to us. So. Uh, if we think about Hollywood Game Night has been made in 22 countries, domestic, or uh, internationally rather, and The Wall has been made in 27, and Jam has already been, uh, I believe, licensed or is in production uh, in about 12 to 13 countries, and that's a show that only started less than a year ago, so mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. doing great, and, uh, and we've produced that here with Monkey Kingdom, who I think are hiding in, in the middle over there. Um, and. Um, we're also diversifying and this is a really important part for us is that's what we're known for but we're excited to be stepping into docu-series, documentary, natural history. So we have our huge project called the Americas which we're making with the BBC Natural History Unit which is a 10-part odyssey going from north to south across America. That's, uh, two, we're halfway through a four-year production period so we're two years in and it's going to be on uh, NBC after the Olympics in 2024. And then we're producing L.A. Fire and Rescue with with Dick Wolf, which is incredible. We've embedded crews with the rescue teams across Los Angeles, and uh, to see these heroes up up close and see what they're doing um, is is truly amazing. And that premieres next also next year on NBC. Um, and the key, I would just say, the key to our success is partnerships and forging new relationships with great program makers and producers. And today we're announcing that we're exclusively going into a development partnership with South Shore, who are based here in the UK, and that's in our pursuit of trying to find the next big
1: one. Fantastic. Um, Toby, how long have you, you, you are obviously a Brit, but you're based in LA, how long have you not
4: been? It's a fake
2: a accent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Don't be fooled.
4: Uh, uh, 15 years. Okay. Wow. And I'm seeing some colleagues in, in, in here that I haven't seen for a very long time, but yeah, I've been gone for 15 years, and it's, it's gone like that, it's crazy, but it's good to
1: be back. Yeah. Good good to have you back. Um Erin, we'll we'll move this along to you uh, at the end here. Um, okay, so the Universal television brand, um, like how universal television brand is is, is such a storied um, brand as it is. Um, I feel like it, it occupies an even more important role within the um, within the wider comcast and NBC universal um, ecosystem to, you know, as much today as it, as it ever has done um, what what sets you apart in this um, you know gruelingly um, <laughs> gruelingly competitive landscape
5: it is gruelingly competitive uh, indeed well universal television it, you know the brand like you said it's it's very rich in its history, and it is, I think, been known uh, from the beginning for quality programming with broad appeal, um, and I would say shows with cultural relevance. And, you know, the brand has certainly evolved over the years, and I have been at NBC for quite some time. Um, About 20 or so years ago, when I first joined the company, I actually joined NBC Studios, which was what was the name of the studio at the time, which is now, you know, known as Universal Television. And we literally produced five shows, about five or six, for NBC alone. And obviously, we have grown Exponentially, and we now produce close to 50 series, drama, and comedy for NBC, but also for other broadcast channels, for streaming, for cable. And so, you know, it's been tremendous growth since I, since I arrived. And we, as Perlina had mentioned, you know, had a real hand in the NBC, building that NBC comedy legacy with The Office and Will and Grace. I was there for the pilot shoot of that show, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, Parks and Rec, and I think on the drama side, you know, there's no doubt that Dick Wolf has been the absolute bedrock of our business. Uh, he Wolf Films has produced over 2,000 hours of television and counting because. He currently produces nine hours of dramas in the US. Uh, we have the FBI franchise on CBS and the Law and Order franchise and the One Chicago franchise on NBC, all of which I know air here on Sky. So. You know that, that's sort of a little bit of the history of, of, of the broadcast side, and then on the streaming side, you know, uh, Universal Television planted a flag very early on uh, with their premium comedy brands such as Kimmy Schmidt and Russian Doll and uh, Master of None, and more recently Never Have I Ever, and we're continuing to push into the comedy streaming space with Hacks with the beloved Gene uh, Smart, and uh, also we have uh, the upcoming uh, Pete Davidson comedy called Bupkiss, which we are currently shooting in New York City, and uh, we have one of my own favorites as well, Craig Robinson, will be returning for season two of Killing It uh, on Peacock. So, uh, we're cont- continuing to expand the comedy brand. And on, and on the drama side, we are definitely pushing into streaming as well. Uh, we have Bel Air, which launched last year uh, for us, which was you know quite a success shooting season two now, um, Vampire Academy, and then also um, Gilded Age, of course. So I think overall the vision for for us is to really just continue to tell compelling stories that are authentic and relatable and that bring in a global audience. And I just just on the on the on the drama front, I do have an announcement um, to make here. No one has heard. Well, this. I was the only one with the. Ending. Sorry, I'm stealing your thunder. <laughs> um, I am thrilled to announce we have a new project in development at Amazon Prime Video. It's called We Were Liars. It's based on the New York Times best-selling book of the same title by uh, uh, E. Lockhart and Julie Pleck. Will write uh, with along with Karina McKenzie. They will executive produce. Um, There's a writers' room going right now, and it is a suspenseful coming-of-age story with a twist you will not see coming unless you read the book, of course. And you're going to know. But we're really, really excited about that,
2: and uh, excited to hopefully get it picked up soon at Amazon. And and Julie's obviously got a big following from Vampire Diaries. Absolutely. Yeah, and she did Vampire Academy.
1: One of the big stories, maybe on the show front, there's, you know, there's been many big stories. But um, when Girls Five Ever moved from uh, from Peacock to Netflix for its third season, yeah. um, I think it was, it was it was it was initially surprising, and I think um, I think maybe for creators it could it could raise alarm bells that a show that was really I think you know certainly had a very devoted audience um, that you would kind of I don't know what the the right way to say this is, but to kind of let it go to a competitor. Um, what was the, the decision making process behind that? And um, yeah, like how, if, if a creator or a production company had concerns when they saw that, like what, what would you say to them?
5: Well, first of all, we're thrilled that we get to have a season three of Girls Five Ever, for sure. I, you know, in the building alone, there are lots of fans, but you are right. The stars have to completely align for something like this to happen. And again, I've been in the business a long time, and this is very, very rare. It, it's it's very hard to do. Um, but when we knew that uh, it was not going to be renewed for a third season, we pursued and followed up on interest we had received from Netflix. So it was with I will say the full support, internal support of both our Peacock partners, um, as well as obviously you know the studio coming to you know a common agreement that this is the best thing for the show and for the studio business because we all... This is where, you know, it's great to be aligned because even though, you know, we have different objectives, they appreciate and value what we're trying to achieve as, and we appreciate and value what they're trying to achieve. So it really um, was, you know... the perfect timing for it, and I think we feel like everyone won in in the end, and I know that the showrunners have some really fantastic stories for season three ready to go. So we are just grateful uh, that it's it's a reality and it's going to be moving forward.
1: Fantastic. Um, Perlina, with the success of Woman King and Black Panther, um, how is Universal looking to create originals from the African continent? And, um, and, and fully back, uh, back those original stories? Uh,
2: that's a great question, and two movies that I love, by the way. Um, and this, that's a, a conversation we've actually all been having. Of We have absolutely, for personal reasons, I have very much wanted to find uh, some great stories to tell that, you know, either based in African mythology, based in, you know, uh, African countries, what have you, and we are actively pursuing some of those. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Universes, I would say. Even universes. And universes, yeah, yeah, 100%. So, uh, yeah, I I think that, I think there's so many countries, first of all, that there are so many wonderful stories and myths and, you know, that that we should be exposing people to, but certainly there's some, some amazing and specifically for me, Nigerian, you know, mythology that I'd love to explore. Yes. there's <laughs> um, So yes, hopefully we're going to find that right story because we have been actively looking for a while.
1: Um, obviously, t- talent deals and uh, talent relationships are so critical um, to to all studios in in this uh, in television history, but especially with the competitive landscape we're in. Um, when you are putting together first look deals and overall deals. Um, ideally, what are you looking for in, in creative partners? Um, both on, the, yeah, maybe I'll start with
3: Beatrice. Sure. I, think we're, I mean, we're looking to create a partnership, so it's a two-way street in terms of that collaboration, and it's a portfolio, so you know, Nick Antosca, for us at UCP, does a lot of true crime, he does a lot of horror, so we're not necessarily looking to bring on another you know, horror deal, we really want him to lean into that, but you know, we have needs across the group and what we're not doing in certain genres, but usually it's about passion, quality, you know, enthusiasm. I think we like to work with good, good kind people, mm-hmm. which is basic, but it sometimes isn't. Um, and, and I think that that is, that is key to the, the relationship. And I think just having honesty, because truly you just have to be able to have those conversations that bring out the best in people. Yeah. So.
1: And Toby on the unscripted side. We like to help,
4: I mean, just look at this amazing array of talent, but we like to help these A-listers pursue their unscripted passions. So we never would have guessed that Amy Poehler would be into crafting, and she shared that with us, and we birthed a show called Making It, which has now had three seasons, and that's led to a spin-off called Baking It, and she's developing Staking It. She wants to keep going, right, so... <laughs> It's endless, it's endless, Um, but we would never would have imagined that, so it's just amazing to be able to sit down with these people and talk about what interests them, and obviously, you know, The Rock and the Titan Games, and uh, uh, one of the strengths... I, well, for us, just being a part of USG, a, a great example is, is Dick Wolf. We now have multiple shows with Dick Wolf in production, which wouldn't have happened uh, unless we come together.
5: Yeah, and I'll just add, I, I agree with everything Beatrice said, and I think in addition, because we have the Dick Wolf universe, you know, a lot of shows um, that do 22 episodes a year uh, still. We need experienced showrunners, so that's another thing that's you know, it's it's such a skill and it's such a craft, and it takes years to really become a good one, in my opinion. And so that is. A and other, in terms of deals, we look for that skill set because it's it's rare and they're in very, very high demand because of the supply and demand of, of shows these days.
1: Yeah. Erin, um, actually, a, f- a follow-up for that uh, for you. Do you ever offer overall deals to international creators or do they tend to be um, U.S.-focused?
5: They tend to be U.S.-focused, uh, for sure, but at the same time, I think that's one of the beauties of the cross-pollination here is that um, there are times that we can have... Uh, a deal that we do have walk in the door and they want to do something, but they want to shoot in England or they want to like with Vampire Academy. We shot that in Spain, so we worked, you know, with the the, the Spanish production company um, and with be in her role. We're able to put pa- packages together and be really creative in how we go about executing. Mm-hmm. Or La Brea. La Brea shoots mm-hmm. in uh, Australia. Australia. Yeah, so that's Our and North then we're North shooting North. FBI International in Budapest yeah. right now. So. Um, we do have a global f- footprint.
1: Yeah, uh, Toby, with the Dick Wolf unscripted series, was that was that his idea? Like, did he was that an, or uh, was it an idea that you said maybe maybe you'd think about unscripted? That no, you know,
4: they've all come from him or come from people that have brought him ideas, which is a very organic way of our um, of shows coming to be. Is people approach Dick or his team and say we've got this great concept, and then we package. Mm-hmm, so, yeah. yeah, it's pretty much
1: from him. Mm-hmm. In terms of, the, of the, the year ahead, I think everyone is going to need to be extremely nimble, um, probably, you know, duck, bob, weave, whatever whatever we want to say. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I suppose, what, what are your um, strategic goals um, for the 12 months ahead? And maybe I'll start with, with you for this one, Erin. Sure, sure.
2: I
5: think for us, it, um, this has been a goal of mine all along, and I think it's striking a balance between mining our very rich universal library for IP and how we can reinvent things like we did with Equalizer um, not too long ago with Queen Latifah. Um, And at the same time, I think it's important to build our library and add more titles to it. I mean, you know, recently we have, obviously, Never Have I Ever and Hacks and La Brea. Those are all original ideas. So I think it's about, yes, we we want to lean on and embrace this great, rich history of titles that we luckily own. But at the same time, you know, creators are creative and they are coming up with their own characters and their own worlds that they want to explore. And, And to me, it's about making sure that they feel the support and they are encouraged to do that as well. So we can, like I said, at the end of the day, continue to build this great uh, legacy library that we have.
1: Yeah, um, Toby, for you. I, I know um, UTAS has done some interesting things, especially moving into premium, um, kind of historical, not um, unscripted, like big, big programming on that front as yep. well. Maybe t- yeah. Tell us about that. More of
4: that. We've, yeah. We're announcing a big doc in the new year, which I wish I could talk about today, but I. I it's
1: can't. fine. You can. You can. If you. Yeah, want. I know. I know. I've done. <laughs> I've done
4: my announcement. I've done my It's a
2: very big doc. <laughs> it's
4: a big doc. Look at that. Doubling down. Um, <laughs> But I I feel like our genre is due another one of those big ones, you know, the paradigm-shifting thing. And um, I truly believe it's more likely to come out of the UK. I know this market so well. I started here. I know what these brains are like, and that's why we're deliberately plugging in uh, to to, um, our peers here. So I'm expecting a big one, and I'm hoping it comes
1: not just from the UK but hopefully with us as well. Mm -hmm. Just following on from that, what would your... What would your message then be to, to UK unscripted producers um, who might say, okay, maybe I, maybe I have the idea that we'll change, change unscripted or become well, we'd, next? We'd obviously like to hear it. Uh, <laughs> uh, please, please come and share with us. But think big,
4: right? I think we, we, there is a frustration in our community right now with all the reboots, everything's feeling a bit samey, samey, and, and, I, and I know it's nice to see the nostalgia, something coming back, I, there is a place for that, but it can't all be that. So it's about taking risks, thinking big, and um, and in, ensuring it doesn't just feel like you know, something we've seen before. So I hope that's not too generic. You know, mm-hmm. the, the truth is we're in every space, right? I think it's more likely to be a performance show or a talent show or something of that of that sort. But it has to be different, it has to feel unique, and it has to be something we talk about because there's so much noise, there's so much content, it's got to cut through. So I think it probably needs to be a little wild, you know. Like, the biggest
2: Whoa. shows have always been the originals that no one was expecting, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, right,
4: yeah. and we're, we're due one. we yeah, due yeah, one, I think. Yeah. Everyone's starting to get a little antsy, and I think that's where the opportunity and the risk will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could,
1: could be someone in this
4: room.
2: Could be, uh, could anyone, be. If, yeah.
4: Put my number
1: up on the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> you? <laughs> um Beatrice.
2: I
3: think for us on the studio side, you know, we're gonna see more and more collaborations across territories. You know, We have a project that we're putting together with Matchbox in Australia that is this amazing true story that we brought on a Korean producer and a UK writer. It's being produced out of Australia. It's an Australian show. It's gonna have Australian talent, but I think just that mix of the great group of people we have across the studio to utilize is helping us put together the most exciting packages right now. And then in the industry for prediction, I just think if I'd like to see a trend, it would be, I think, you know, we're talking so much about bottom lines and consolidation and the business, and yes, that is a huge part of it, but sometimes I think we forget that this is a business that's built on talent, incredibly creative people, storytelling, and that we have to remember that they're important and give that reference, and if that is given that attention, it will create hits. I think we forget that and start at a different part, so.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paulina, the, well, yeah, if you can give us a, the 30.
2: <laughs> well, everything they said, but also, um, I, you know, I, I think we, it's where I started that it, it is built on storytelling, what we do. And I want us as a studio group and as a business to be able to expand the kinds of stories that we tell, which means that we really have to seek out different kinds of storytellers. Uh, which means that you know we we have to open the gates in the industry a little bit more to you know more diverse voices and surprising voices, so that 's what i I think that our studio group is going to continue to do and yeah. then I hope how
1: how is it how is it doing that today do you think like o- opening opening the door
2: i think it's ha- i think it's happened i mean I think especially within the last couple of years, you know at least within the u s marketplace it's felt that our our business has been much more open and much more willing to, to accept, you know, diverse storytellers. Just um, and 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 I think we've been we've been the better for it. So um, we're looking for, you know, we're we're looking for ways and programs and how do we, how do we access those, you know, uh, people that ref, that refresh, you know, that re, that refresh our business. The other thing I really hope that we do is. I know we do this a lot but I I feel that sometimes when we keep we call everything we do we call it content it makes it sound so generic right and I just want to remember like yeah it's storytelling and it's tv shows and we make the things that people get if we do them well people get really excited and passionate about it and so um so that yeah let's keep in mind that we're Making TV shows, and we're going to have stories. a
4: swear jar for every time <laughs> someone says content. content. I
2: know, <laughs> I know. And so uh, I just want to, it feels very commodified, you know, in that way. So I just want to make sure that, yes, we clearly trade in art and commerce. But as Beatrice said, we have to remember the art side of it also.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, I think we're just separating people from uh, drinking time now. So uh, <laughs> thanks. Wouldn't want to do that. Wouldn't <laughs> want to, yeah. Uh, guys, if we give another warm round of applause to <laughs> Thank you very much for coming.
0: In the first show of the new year after an extended festive break, the C21 team considers how the events of the past year will shape the international TV business in 2023. With a deteriorating economic outlook already translating into job and programme budget cuts across TV last year, many are expecting the belt tightening to continue in the coming 12 months. Netflix and Disney Plus have introduced ad-supported tiers to their subscription services and Avod and Fast Channels are supposed to be booming, but can these survive a sharp downturn in the market? Meanwhile, Bob Iger is back at the Mouse House, and last year's Warner Brothers Discovery merger continues to play out, while pressure's building on all the US studios to prove the viability of their pivot to streaming as the threat of a writer's strike looms, with Unscripted once again the potential beneficiary. C21 News Editor Clive Whittingham, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks, north american editor jordan pinto and c21 kids editor carolina kaminska join me to offer their predictions for the year ahead happy new year everybody welcome back did you have a good break yeah, happy new
6: year johnny it was uh it was uh, it was quality as always just sitting and watching old films
7: a lovely break thank you
1: yeah feeling suitably refreshed
0: yeah it was top thanks top stuff okay well it's the start of 2023 exciting times indeed Grim by some accounts. Obviously, there's everyone's expecting uh gloom and doom this year with with recession sort of looming. But um we'll touch a little bit on that, but we'll try to focus on some of the lighter points as well. I don't know. If I look back to start with on uh 2022, I mean some of the major stories that really stood out for me was obviously it was Netflix's shift to an ad-supported offering, Bob Iger returning to to Disney and speculation about what that might mean warner brothers hbo discovery all the complexities around that that merger you know similarly the growth of of paramount global as well um we did see some some cutbacks at the end of last year as well. Netflix, Roku, Snapchat, CBS, Paramount, as I uh, just mentioned, and AMC um, also reining in spending and and um, cutting back on, on headcount as well. So, I mean, it's going to be a, a tough year ahead, but exciting times as well. So, Jordan, yeah, what about you? Pick out some of the things that you think are going to be the big stories for 2023.
1: Yeah, I think one of the major questions will be the degree to which, um, you know, some of the layoffs and the cuts that we saw throughout 2022, um, whether they are going to continue this year. Um, I know, as you mentioned there, some of the you know m- many of the, the the companies netflix in particular at the start of the year when they lost subscribers for the first time they started to kind of reshape their business and then um warner brothers discovery and all the you know the the mass um you know deep cuts that have happened there has been one of the storylines of the year i think the the hope is that some of these cuts will be behind the industry now but i think that might be a little unrealistic um you know at, at the end of I think it was in it was in December or at the start of December, um, James Dolan, who's the interim CEO at AMC, he gave kind of one of the most brutally honest uh, statements or assessments of, of the industry. And he said, um, kind of, it, it, well, this is, it was his quote, um, it, it was our belief that cord cutting losses would be offset by gains in streaming. This has not been the case. Uh, we are primarily a content company and the mechanisms for the monetization of content are in disarray. Um, so I think the, the the hope would be that that is behind us. Um, I think probably Warner Brothers Discovery and Netflix are a bit ahead of the curve, in, in, ahead of the others in terms of how they've reshaped the business. I think some of the others, and uh, uh, Amazon have done a lot of restructuring too. I think the hope would be that everyone is set up to to basically enter the next phase of, of the streaming wars by probably spring of this year. And um, let's hope that the the cuts don't also trickle down to some of the production companies as well, because I think how the production companies will react to... Um, to the changes will be an interesting storyline for 2023.
0: I mean, it is interesting that at the end of last year, those um, sort of figures came out suggesting that Netflix's shift to AVOD, you know, or at least offering an AVOD tier hadn't been as successful as they were hoping. Disney's also sort of made that shift, introducing an ad-supported tier as well. But there's a real sense that there's a sort of a a focus on the bottom line now. And with Lionsgate, for example, sort of abruptly pulling its own streaming service out of seven markets, I think it was, in, in November. the the, the sort of the bean counters are really kind of (laughs) going to have their day, aren't they, in 2023?
1: I would think so. Yes, I know Netflix. Basically, the numbers that came out about Netflix's ad tier weren't especially good, but it is—it's so early in it. Um, I, I think it's Ted Sarandos—he said that in terms of their advertising business, they're in a, a, a kind of crawl, walk, run situation. And he said right now they're in the crawl phase. Um, so they're, they're definitely hoping that will will build this year. At the same time, though, some of the reports that the the Avod tier wasn't kind of taking off as quickly as planned um, was having a material impact on Netflix. Netflix's share price. So I think that the, the markets are really closely monitoring how how quickly um, consumers are picking up these these AVOD services and, and switching across to them. And the slow start has certainly seen uh, like Netflix's share price kind of took a bit of a tumble in mid-December. And I think it, it, again, it'll be very interesting to see what what happens in, in the in the first few months of 2023 as the Avod tiers, hopefully, from the streamers perspective start to gain traction
8: and uh, nico here it's it seems to me that there's a bit of a lag between the ads that you get on avod and the ads that you get on linear tv and that experience of watching ads on linear tv obviously it's annoying but at least in that ad spot you're getting served you know a few different ads and then the next time they come around you won't see the same ones. Whereas I feel like whenever I'm watching an AVOD service, I'm getting the same ad in the same show three times. And it's, you know, it really um, spoils the kind of whole experience. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of frustration if, if that issue of not even personalization, because that gets spoken about quite a lot, but it seems like we're a long way off that just getting more and more variety in the ads seems to be, um, I think that should be a priority. And and I suppose that's the big difference between the AVOD when you talk about for Netflix, which people are still having to pay for, and something like Freevee, which is free. So there's this assumption that kind of all AVOD is, is the same, but I think what the challenge Netflix and the other streamers, so like Disney, when they're bringing in this ad-supported tier, the fact that people are still having to pay uh, to watch ads, I think, is going to be a real sticking point.
7: Yeah, I completely agree with, with what you said there, Nico, about um, the type of ads that you're getting. Like, I genuinely prefer sitting and watching the ads on linear TV than the ads that you get streaming, because there is there, there does seem to be so much repetition. And on the, on the point about the cost, I think it's a really big issue, to be honest, because um, I think, so Disney Plus has launched its AVOD tier in the U.S., um, and I think it's $7.99 a month, which is what the SVOD tier used to be. And that's now gone up to ten ninety nine a month. So the saving between the AVOD and the SVOD, I mean, it's really quite small. And I just don't think it's significant enough. If, if the idea is that they're trying to appease people who are cutting down on spending, you know, in the cost of living crisis, etc. A saving of $3 just isn't really enough. Um, I think they need to go a lot further. So I'm not convinced at all that that this 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 new AVOD, vod s hybrid kind of thing is really going to is really going to be that effective.
6: Right, I, I um, agree with Carolina. I don't think people are going to pay pay money a month and still get the ads. I think that's going to annoy people. They'll either pay the the bigger amount to not have the ads, or they won't pay at all. I think it's an, a pretty obvious trend for this year that there'll be cord cutting on SVODs. Because I mean, from personal experience, I've been going through my bank statement line by line and thinking, do I really need that? Do I really need that? And putting lines through things and ditching subscriptions. So in theory, you know, things like Pluto TV and whatever could could have their moment in 2023. And I know a lot of people are, are, are predicting that as a as a big trend. I'm interested to, to see how that goes, because Ultimately, you're then competing with YouTube, aren't you, which is the biggest video site in the world. At the moment, most AVOD services, and I see a lot of distributors, J, and people like that doing this, avod can be a just a place to sort of dump rights that you've got sitting on a shelf and aren't doing anything with you can have like the Gordon Ramsay channel and just stick all your old episodes of kitchen nightmares on there and then in theory people like me who have kitchen nightmares on in the background all afternoon will will come to your avod channel but if they get if you're going to monetize that you're going to have to become a lot more proficient at policing the the rights around that because again because I'm sad I know this there are just episodes of kitchen nightmares sitting on daily motion sitting on youtube sitting everywhere you know they they're not hard to find so why would I seek out your gordon ramsay channel to come and do that and there's loads of shows like that that i just watch as background noise you can just find them they're on youtube they're on daily motion they're everywhere so that that rights business is going to be difficult for for avod and I, uh, there's obviously the the issue of the declining ad market because obviously in recession the first thing that gets cut is everybody's ad budget. So is Avod gonna to monetize it? I just I don't see how you. It's like it's like a nice extra for companies Avod. It's a nice extra if you've got a load of library content. But is the ad market going to decline? Are people really going to come to all these hundreds and hundreds of Avod channels to to watch this content, which is which is freely available? And are they going to do that in such a number that you can significantly monetize it so that it can be this big savior in 2023 if everybody's going to cord cut? i'm i'm not overly convinced i've got to say
0: there has been an awful lot of excitement around this space hasn't there and uh nico you mentioned Freevee, amazon's uh free service and the the combination of avod and fast channels as they call them sort of you know tied around specific shows like neighbors which they said uh last year that they were going to revive in in 2023 i mean i think that's really interesting you know what happening in that space and i think you know obviously we haven't seen yet what amazon's going to do with with mgm and the vast sort of catalog of programming that it picks up through that acquisition as well so i guess it's going to be a market for those with the deepest pockets to kind of to get through and make these business models work anybody got any thoughts on that
6: yeah just i'll say one more thing and then i'll shut up when netflix first launched um, it had what was called the house of cards moment which house of cards was this incredible show that everybody was talking about and everybody wanted to see and you could only get it on netflix that's the reason i subscribed to netflix back in the sort of pre kevin spacey disaster days i got netflix so i could watch house of cards so a lot of these services hang on having that must-see thing and we're going to come on to talk about um HBO Max and Discovery merging. They're getting into some interesting sports rights. Viaplay that has just launched in the UK has made a sort of canny purchase uh, of some niche sports rights, which not many people watch. But if you like that sport, you've now got to have Viaplay. If you want to watch the Scottish national team play football, you have to have Viaplay now. If you like... Ice hockey in this country, you have to have viaplay. Rugby league has gone to viaplay. So you've either got to have those sports rights that have got the rabid fans after them, or you've got to have that incredible original show that only that, that can only be seen on your platform and everybody is. Sorry, terrible cliche round the water cooler talking about. Netflix had that when it launched with House of Cards, and you see their their quarterly results now often depend on whether they've had that big show in that quarter. It's like it has the new series of Stranger Things landed and attracted the audience you know will the wednesday adams family spin-off do that for them in this quarter i watched that last week and and don't think so you know is a second and third season of that going to bring people in probably not based on the first season for the avod thing where can they afford can they make a business model work i know blue Ant and companies like that have talked about doing originals on avod is there enough money in AVOD to justify, certainly there isn't to justify going for sports rights and putting them on your AVOD thing. I think YouTube have tried little bits and pieces of that down the years, but is there enough money to commission the originals that are going to be exclusively yours and make people come to your AVOD platform? Again, I'm I, I'm sceptical.
8: Uh, this might be where people talk about, you know, because it is um, easier to do on a lower budget, you know, the unscripted moment, and we're already seeing it, you know, there was a buzz around unscripted at, content london at the tail end of of 2022 and it'll be interesting to see yeah whether unscripted can bring in subscribers like scripted can in terms of getting you know the conversation going um it does seem to be that drama kind of captures people's imaginations more and unscripted is more kind of as you were saying kind of background tv but there's definitely a case for those Um, your freebies and your other AVOD services to do more unscripted originals, which could be a boon for unscripted producers. And then on the flip side of that, we're seeing Netflix kind of bring its big budgets um, to the unscripted genre and Squid Game, The Challenge. So that launches this year. And that's got, I think, one of the biggest prize um, funds available, I think, to any unscripted show and the most number of kind of unscripted contestants with that. And I don't think any of them are going to, um you, you know die at the end like they do in the drama but you know we'll we'll be interested to see how much that one well, squid game the challenge gets people talking um and if it does as much as the the drama did um, when we were kind of talking about it this time last year
0: yeah i mean the growth of unscripted has been a, a sort of a, a facet that we've been following closely over the past few years is there a suggestion that you know there's the sort of talk of a looming writer's strike as well in in the us as well and and the last time that happened that was a, a great opportunity for unscripted is that going to sort of further propel the the genre and combining that with some uh, cutback in expenditure on the on the big budget dramas that we've seen in recent years
1: um yes i, I certainly I think it could, John. I think it, it was quite telling um, during during Content London when uh, Channing Dungey, of uh, chairman of Warner Brothers uh, Television Group, was asked about some of the biggest, uh, you know, some of the biggest uh, challenges in 2023. The first thing she said was that the uh, the potential looming writers' strike was um, a big stressor for them. Um, you know that they're planning for it and they're preparing for it to happen. Um, whether it does actually happen, I think, is, is a slightly different um, matter. Um, the the contract, the, the Writers Guild of America's contract. Ends on May the first, um, and so if they haven't reached a new agreement with the um, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, if if they haven't reached that agreement, then we could see a strike after that. Um, I, I think from the from the writer side of things, th- there's a few different issues at play. I think on the one hand, there hasn't really been a kind of big renegotiation of of, of writers' place um, in, in the industry since. I think we have the before times where there's 22 episodes a season of a network TV show. Now it's all shorter order, um, you know, six or eight eight episodes per season on, on streaming. So, a, kind of a, a big renegotiation of that is is obviously on the is on the table. Um, streaming residuals or residual payments is also going to be a factor here. I, I think the writing community feels. It, quite vulnerable at the moment um especially when you have companies like warner brothers discovery um not only cancelling shows but basically completely removing them from um from hbo max in order that they you know to cut costs essentially so i think there's there's definitely a feeling that the everyday working tv writer is is currently underappreciated and under uh, under compensated um and that, that's something that will definitely be addressed or potentially be addressed um with this um with this agreement up for renewal I think it's it's hard to tell whether it will be. It's, it's a different time. So in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, when the original writer strike happened, um, there was certainly more um, unscripted content commissioned. Whether that will happen as a result if there is a writer's stoppage, um, I think we'll definitely see more unscripted. But it'll be it'll, it might be hard to ascertain whether it's solely from the fact that the writers have uh, you know t- gone on hiatus or gone on strike. Or whether it's the industry just shifting toward unscripted um, anyway at a time when scripted budgets have kind of ballooned um, inflation. And at the same time as the stream, all the kind of streaming focused companies are kind of realigning their businesses to basically cut costs. And uh, unscripted seems to be a, a very logical. Logical way to do that.
6: I'm interested by the type of unscripted that that might come out of this, because the last writer's strike was basically the birth of the reality television business in the US. And originally it was all sort of very highly constructed um, reality series like Dance Moms and things that came out of that. And yes, it was cheap and you could do it in great volume and it did very well, but the audience sort of tired of that and have started everyone started talking about authenticity. You go to the factual events now, you know, MIP.content London Real Screen, and you can't move for this word authenticity. Everybody wants authenticity. They don't want the heavy hand of the producer in these shows anymore. That was what grew out of it last time. So is there going to be another new form of reality or unscripted that, that comes this time? At the moment, all the trending unscripted is towards drama models, more co-productions, more shows showrunners in factual and again that adds time and expense which is the reason that you're going towards unscripted in the first place so I'm intrigued to see what sort of unscripted comes out because it's all very well just saying drama's too expensive and all the writers on strike we're going to do unscripted now but but what sort
7: and and when they're talking about authenticity as well what do they actually mean because you know it there's like you say everywhere you go there's this kind of talk about we need authentic voices etc etc but reality is is still huge and you look at all of these shows that you know like Love Island and Married at First Sight and the the broadcasters and, and the streamers are definitely looking for more of that type of program from what I can see but is that really authentic like yes it features real people but you know there's a lot of drama going on in the background um so i don't really know when they talk about authenticity and what do they actually mean by that and um so so i agree with you i think it will be interesting to see what kind of trend this leads into um in the coming year
1: i was just gonna say it'd be nice to see them ban the word authenticity in 2023
0: hate that that word We're going to see the return of Big Brother in the UK as well. So that'll be interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to use the word you've just banned, Jordan, but, uh, you know, there were suggestions that uh, somehow the producers behind that would be getting back to the original sort of raw reform, I suppose, of that reality show, which came out more than 20 years ago now.
6: Isn't that with Ke- If you leave Kevin Ligo in charge of it, though, I mean, he's been pretty open that Love Island's done really well for them, but they've only got it for eight weeks. So they've basically commissioned this to tag on. Isn't this just going to be like Love Island? Island in Solihull. It's just he just wants that show again, doesn't he? But slightly different location.
8: I suppose we'll we'll see as soon as they announce the cast thing. Because I think the great thing about Big Brother initially was that it had so many different people of different ages, backgrounds, and you know a lot of you know over the years a lot of them have, have kind of graduated onto to become TV presenters and things like that. So it is kind of a good uh, talent generator in a lot of ways. Big Brother. So it'll be interesting to see if. Yeah, they do go down that route, or they revert kind of to type, I suppose, and and we'll see whether or not they go down the Love Island route of kind of conventionally attractive people, or they'll kind of go back to to yeah, what I think made Big Brother interesting in the first place was that it had um, lots and lots of different people.
0: Let's go back a bit to um, Warner Brothers Discovery, Jordan, Clive, a company that you've both followed closely. Um, I think this time last year when we were looking ahead to uh, 2022, you know, that was obviously a, a major story, the merger that was happening there. And and the sort of the ramifications of that are still echoing across the industry. Um uh, how much clearer are we on, on what the new Warner Brothers Discovery is going to be, and particularly, you know, the on-demand service that they're going to be offering?
1: Um, yeah, well, I think the first thing to say just about Warner Brothers Discovery in 2022 was I think it was probably the most talked about thing and the mo- the thing that raised people's uh, blood pressure the most. Um, I think on the one side, you have people saying that the the studios do need to be a bit leaner um, in in this um, in this environment if they're going to take on the likes of Netflix. Um, but then on the other side, like people are just ab- utterly livid, uh, off the record, completely irate about um, some of the cuts uh, that have been taking place at Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, with that said, um, I think t- t- the, the, the big thing for them in 2023 will be this, um, the c- combination of HBO Max and Discovery Plus to create this, this super streamer. It's kind. Of, it's interesting because it was. It was essentially one of the central um, tenets of this merger, right? That they could. That they could put these two streamers together and create this. Um, this super entity that would appeal to a, a completely, uh, you know, all the that will be able to capture all the unscripted viewers and all the scripted viewers. Um, they've brought the release of it forward to uh, spring of 2023 in the US, and then it'll roll out elsewhere. Um, Initially, Zaslav, this was about a year ago. Zaslav had been talking about um you know trying to trying to get to around two hundred million subscribers. Um, they're at ninety five million now um, when you have HBO, HBO Max, and Discovery Plus combined, but they're not really marketing anything at the moment because they're waiting for the service to be combined. and then I think they're going to really put a push behind it. It'll be interesting to see basically what kind of uptake they get um, when they really put put a push behind it, and they've combined these two these two libraries. I'm I'm a bit um, I'm, I'm cautious to be too optimistic about this um, about this this union. I, I don't know what people's appetite. If, if you're an HBO Max subscriber, I'm still skeptical about the appetite um, for discovery style programming. Um, and and vice versa, if you're a discovery, um, you know, if you like the factual programming, are you completely eager to see all these scripted shows? I think it'll it'll be interesting. I actually don't know how, how it will uh, pan out, but um, I think it's, uh, yeah, one of the bigger storylines of 2023.
6: The two big um, things with this for me are, firstly, when Discovery Plus launched as a streamer, talking to the unscripted indies and distributors, obviously I talked to more of them in the UK and Jordan talked to more of them in, in the US, but the big thing that they were waiting to see with Discovery Plus was whether it was going to keep up commissioning in individual territories or whether it would adopt a model of you know one show and it just goes on discovery plus and they commission a lot less because there are a lot of these shows and they don't get big audiences but these you know engineering shows or shows about planes and plane crashes and things like that they're sort of the lifeblood for a lot of factual indies and unscripted indies and unscripted distributors and the discovery channels that channel portfolio of of cable nets in the us and pay tv channels around the world elsewhere that they've got are huge buyers of that so that was a big concern when discovery plus launched and i think a lot of people were quite satisfied that discovery plus actually turned out to be a new buyer on top of that rather than a replacement buyer so is that going to continue when when this all gets slammed together so far all we've seen is cuts so i think there'll be a lot of distributors and factual prod codes sort of having a sleepless time over over the new year waiting to see how that falls out and obviously in jordan's coverage this year you know Getting a new commission out of Discovery at the moment is is next to impossible. They're just they're just not doing it, which is a big headache for for production companies. The other point about that, if you're going to have a super streamer, and I come back to it, you've got to have that must see moment, that thing that makes people have to have your service. Now HBO drama fits into that. But we're now in this era where Amazon is spending whatever they're spending on Lord of the Rings and things like that. So, are we, go- you've got to get, are HBO going to be able in this setup to be able to churn out sort of must see television in and keep up with that spending? Or are they going to be able to come up with ideas like Six Feet Under from back in the day, which didn't look a particularly expensive show, but every- everybody watched? Alternative to that is again, sports rights. Um, so, I came home at Christmas, my stepdad's here he'd never heard of discovery plus i mentioned it in a conversation he was like what's that i was like well it's here on your television if you want to subscribe to it he'd absolutely never heard of it when i told him that they'd picked up bt sport so there'll be some premier league and some of his tottenham hotspur games on there next season straight away was like well you're gonna have to tell me how to get that then because that's what sports rights do if they've got your sport that you watch you have that and you have you have to have that service and i think that's how you go from being a sort of niche streamer or a mid-range streamer into into a serious likey says 200 million subscriber thing discovery have been quite cute and clever with some of the sports they've picked up they've stayed away from expensive premier league football and gone for things like cycling and golf for eurosport which has that rabid following like not a big following but if you're a cycling fan you have to have eurosport and If they're going to get to 200 million and above and uh, that critical mass, it's got to be either must-see original drama, which is expensive, or must-see sports rights, which is even more expensive still, I guess. So it's it's a tough gig they've got.
0: I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think that, uh, you know, Bob Arger's return to Disney. And and one of the sort of stories or theories that's floating around about that is that, you know, Disney and and Apple will end up coming together. And obviously, Disney's got ESPN and Apple's been starting to spend some big money on on sports rights as well. Um, Does anybody have any theories which align with that or alternative theories on why Bob Arger might be back at Disney?
1: Well, I, I think well, he's been brought. This is very general, a very general point. I think he's been brought back to do two things. Which first one is to um, eventually find a successor to him, uh, which has he's been very unsuccessful at doing uh, over the in the past. Um, obviously, Bob J. Peck, um didn't pan out, and they brought Bob Iger back as a result. So, finding his his long term successor, I think, will be one of the first things. And and the second thing people seem to believe or insiders say is to execute some kind of some kind of deal um i think with some of the with the ways the the competition uh, or some of the antitrust um bodies in the us have been looking at these deals now I, I don't know what the what the feeling about a disney and apple or apple acquiring disney um deal like w- w- would be um, I think I think these things are going to be very very heavily scrutinized um so I, I I don't really know I think there'll be a few knock-on effects I was chatting with someone recently um and they were saying that it'll be interesting to see um so in January 2024 is basically the time when Disney, can either fully buy out comcast for hulu and it looks like that that's what will happen um from there if 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 comcast is kind of unattached from hulu at that point it'll be interesting to see whether they look to make some other kind of acquisition so i think there could be if Com- comcast were then to look at acquiring one of the other major studios i think that there could be some knock-on effects from that so um i think again Lots of, lots of things to watch out for, but I think it might be too early to to know what kind of deals uh, Disney might be in the market for. And and Bob Iger, I think on his return, he did say they weren't looking imminently at uh, at any um, at any deals.
0: That's right, he did he did sort of downplay that suggestion. But I think I think it's an interesting theory anyway.
1: I agree I agree uh, entirely that um, yeah he definitely did downplay it. And uh, you know who you know I, I understand that ex- executives don't always say exactly what's happening. But um, so yeah, it, it'll be uh, fascinating.
0: Well, Netflix did downplay any suggestion that they would ever move into advertising and they've done exactly that. Um, Another kind of story that I guess we've been talking about a little bit as well is the way in which now the pressure on these big... US studios and uh, on the big streamers that have made such an investment in in content, you know, and now having to sort of claw back money from that investment in alternative ways if, you know, if the subscription kind of numbers aren't sort of coming in at, at their projections, you know. So there's been a sense that, you know, some of the studios that have been sort of holding on to the rights, that they were, you know, stockpiling to sort of power their services, they're now sort of loosening their, their grip on them a little bit and, and being a little bit more open to licensing and possibility, perhaps, that Netflix might even do the same with its originals.
1: Yeah, that, that would be one of my predictions of the year, actually, that a Netflix executive will, at some point <laughs> over the next 12 months, suggest that they might start licensing their content. Um, I, I think, yeah, a lot of people have made the, um, you know, the observation that, Something like a House of Cards now is it's, people aren't subscribing to Netflix in order to to watch House of Cards, and and this is this is true for all the streaming services actually. But they would certainly be able to generate some revenue by licensing that content elsewhere. Um, and all these streamers have such vast libraries now. And to be honest. Really good shows that could be rediscovered um, on on other networks. That I, I think um, maybe once investors um, <laughs> start to understand the the, the kind of licensing uh, dollars that you can bring in from uh, from like a if the, if there was a, a wide scale licensing um, effort at at, at, a, at a place like Netflix, I think once investors started started to realize the kind of return that that could bring, um, they might start pushing for that. And as we saw with advertising. I think, you know, all these streamers are kind of at the um, at the mercy of what Wall Street wants at the end of the day. So they, they will have their hand forced at some point is is the way I see it.
0: Very brave of you to put your neck on the line there, Jordan, with an actual prediction for 2023. Anyone else want to, to dive in with theirs?
6: I've got two. Do you want the serious one or the non-serious one?
0: Give us both. A
6: serious one. I think more than one of these streaming services by the end of next year is we're going to be talking about them closing or merging. Um, like we say, people are going through bank statements and saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. I just this idea that everybody's going to have their own streaming service and people are going to have sort of 12, 15 subscriptions. I don't see any more in this economy. So ugh, do I want to say things like Peacock and things like that? I don't I don't really see where they fit from 2023 going into 2024. and um, once they've finished cutting staff as we're seeing at the moment, they're gonna <laughs> what what do you cut what do you throw overboard next? We're already seeing things like Salto in France, which is reasonably new, set up by three broadcasters to compete with these streamers and they've realized that they just can't do it. And that's that's already sort of on the rocks and on the way out. So I think there'll be more of that. My other one is I think the twist in MILF manor is going to be that uh, the eight lads parachuted in are all their sons.
0: MILF Manor, yes. Yeah, show of the, show
6: cool. of the year. Don't say you're not going to be
0: watching it. <laughs> Anyone else got some uh, MILF-related predictions or otherwise? Nico, Carolina, how about you? So this
8: time last year when we were making predictions, we didn't quite kind of correctly predict the kind of streaming dip that you know Netflix probably most famously faced. You know, Actually, I was predicting that a streamer was going to uh, uh, potentially acquire a a premier league football team um but it might be the case you know they might have to look now down towards more like league two maybe grimsby united uh, rather than leeds united but yeah i think as far as predictions for 2023 i think this might be the year that people kind of finally give up on the idea of the metaverse being something that people kind of use a headset to to watch it's kind of one of my bugbears that i think i've, I've mentioned on the podcasts uh previously that i just can't see headsets taking on. I just don't think people like to put them on and people don't like seeing people wearing them. So I think there is definitely a way for TV companies to kind of find more revenue streams. And I think live experiences rather than the metaverse will be that way. I think it's definitely not a new thing. You know, obviously Disney's been doing live experiences based on its IP for for decades. But, you know, we're seeing with IP like Peaky Blinders and also Crystal Maze and both scripted and unscripted TV shows um, being kind of very fruitful avenues for live experiences and although i think people obviously are kind of belt tightening i think people do still want to interact with one another and kind of go out and maybe in cinemas this could be a way for them to bring more people through the door is to kind of tab on kind of be they escape rooms or there's there's lots of kind of um, emerging kind of um, technologies in terms of kind of very people able to use kind of quite small rooms um to make quite kind of interesting um, escape room style experiences and, and the kind of game gamifying um, side of things uh, based on TV. I think that's going to be um, even more of a, a big thing in 2023.
7: Yeah, I definitely Carry agree with you on that, Nico. Um, I've had multiple conversations this year where gaming and virtual content immersive experiences have come up so I definitely think that's going to be a top trend in in 2023 both in um in the the kids space as well as the non kids space. Um, I also think that obviously my my area kind of being more in in the children's sector, but this isn't specifically children's. But in in terms of younger audiences, I think there's going to be an increased focus on content for young adults. Obviously. Young adults are spending a lot of time on social media and less time watching traditional TV, as we know. But it's, it's a subject that's also come up a lot in the past year or so as not just the traditional broadcasters, but the streamers as well are, are really fighting to try and keep that audience engaged. So um, I, th- I think we're going to see a lot more commissions of YA, both dramas and unscripted. Um, and I think we'll see more production companies focusing on that demographic as well. At the end of 2022, Channel 4 announced some plans to double down on youth skewing programming. And it also recently launched digital platform Channel 4.0 on YouTube, which is aimed at teens and young adults. So, yep, I think there's there's more of that to come from other platforms, streamers, broadcasters as well. Um, And another thing that I'm seeing come up a lot is anime. It's starting to become really popular again. And it's it's actually come up at i think every single kids event that I went to in 2022 and um, we're seeing lots of non-japanese creators coming up with anime style productions particularly in France where they have their own kind of french manga which is absolutely massive um and they those projects tend to be quite high budget at cartoon Forum this year there were a couple of really standout anime style productions which you you could tell cost a lot of money um, and it and it fits into that that trend for premium high quality programming that we've obviously been seeing for quite some time and also leans into the increased focus on YA content because that demographic will be a core audience for anime type programming I think and in line with that adult animation too I'm definitely expecting to see more of that this year and actually at Content London in December Liam Keelan revealed that Disney Plus is going to be moving into the adult animation world in Europe, which would will be a first because obviously we see um, quite a bit of adult animation coming out of the US, but it's it's not really an area that's evolved really in Europe. So it looks like Disney Plus might be taking advantage of that and tapping into that space.
0: Great. Okay. Well, your mention of Content London there makes me think that Content Americas is coming up very soon as well. So we don't have long to prepare for that. So I guess we'll wrap there and say Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Carolina. Thank you, Clive and Nico. Great discussion and some uh, some great things to chew over there and be very interesting to come back, obviously, next year and find out whether those predictions will come true. Have a wonderful 2023, everybody, and um, catch up with you soon.
8: Cheers. Happy,
0: Happy New Year. year. Cheers. Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy New Year. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.